National media continues to exaggerate and promote misleading negative headlines designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Remember, the only people who want to defund the police and dismantle these agencies are the criminals. And don't forget to thank a cop. Now, let's start the show. Good morning and welcome to Law Matters for December the 23rd. If you haven't figured it out already, this is not Sherry Harrison. Uh, Sherry is a little under the weather and uh, didn't have a voice that could probably sustain an hour talking this morning. So this is Rich Tracy sitting in for her this morning. We have a couple of great guests we'll get to in just a couple minutes. But first, we have on the line retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Hal, Hal Kempfer, uh, the president and CEO of Global Risk Intelligence Planning. Good morning, Colonel. How are you? Good, Rich. How are you? Doing great. Glad Doing to be here. Yeah, glad, glad to have you. Um, I'm afraid to just ask a simple question of tell us what's happening in the world, please. Um, <laughs> we may never, we may never get out of what you have to say, but I'll, I'll risk it. So go ahead and tell us what's going on in the world. Well, there's, there's a few things. Uh, of course, one of the biggest, biggest things is what's going on with the, the war in Israel, the uh, Israel Hamas war. Um, as, as was just mentioned in the news, uh, they, the Israelis are, are getting ready to shift at some point. Up in northern Gaza, where they first went in, uh, they're shifting from what's called clearing operations to holding operations. Holding operations uh, in Israeli doctrine allow them to actually set the seeds for working with local Palestinians or working with the civilian populace. So it, there is a possibility that they're going to start repatriating or, or, or shifting people who move to the south back up north again. Not exactly clear where they're going to live because, frankly, most of the buildings have been destroyed. So there's a uh, big operation they have to do there. Still doing major operations in the south, still clearing, um, going after leadership targets, uncovering a lot of huge tunnels. One tunnel was big enough that uh, literally you could drive vehicles out of the tunnel uh, so that the tunnel complex is as they uncover, it's getting more and more interesting uh, as they go along. Yesterday, uh, uh, the interesting thing was the uh, UN vote. There was a National Security Council resolution which did not call for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, it called for uh, essentially operational pauses, uh, increased humanitarian corridors, and interestingly, the U.S. abstained. Uh, didn't extend, didn't do a veto on this, abstained, and the, the U.S. ambassador actually uh, kind of praised this resolution. Uh, the Israelis uh, praised the U.S. Uh, for its work on shaping this resolution. So it actually turned out there's a U.N. resolution, and as you know, the U.N. has not been exactly uh, uh, in sync with Israel on this thing for quite some time. A UN resolution that uh, that actually Israel can kind of live with and actually uh, work with and actually pursue things in accordance. The reason the U.S. didn't vote for it or, or abstain was it didn't have certain language, and the language they wanted was a condemnation of uh, the October seventh attacks, and of course Hamas as the terrorist group, the perpetrator of October seventh, couldn't get that in. Welcome to the. Uh, to the uh, Byzantine world of UN politics, that they couldn't get that language into the resolution. So, well, I understand. Um, then, I'm sorry. I understand that Russia also abstained, if I recall correctly. So, 
I guess in, in this day and age, we don't find ourselves voting uh, or being on the same side as Russia, but they abstained for a totally different purpose, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, there is nothing in sync with that. Uh, Russia abstained, well, because of Russia. Okay, uh, they're, they're a spoiler uh, in this whole thing. And, of course, they're close allies with Iran. And, uh, and their abstention probably had more to do with their relationship with Iran than anything else. And, of course, one thing I would mention, and I think this is actually maybe the biggest news for the world, is uh, shipping through the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal has really ground, ground to an almost halt. The U.S. is leading a large uh, combined task force there to deal with the Houthi rebels that are fighting uh, from Yemen, uh, shooting uh, anti-ship missiles and drones uh, against shipping. Uh, yesterday, the big news was uh, that the U.S. announced that, yes, the Iranians were providing detailed target intelligence to the uh, Houthis uh, so they could attack these ships. I'm not sure what the next step is regarding Iran. There's a lot of questions on that. Could this broaden the war? What will happen? Um, but this is a big thing. 15% of shipping or 15% of commerce around the world goes to the Suez Canal. This is a huge hit. There are ships that are having to add two, about two more weeks in transit because they can't go through the canal. So that's 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 a that's that's one of the biggest ones. And, I, and I, this is not something that's far from my mind. I was just down at the Bob El Mendeb Strait at, at the Red Sea um, a few months ago. And I was working on maritime security issues, so this is kind of close to me in terms of what I do. So, and uh, and then of course, you know, we got the prisoner exchange with uh, with Venezuela. Um, you know, we got back a number of prisoners. We gave them a money launderer that was close to President Maduro, and interestingly, we got back the infamous Fat Leonard. <laughs> I was going to ask I, you about I, him. I know. <laughs> And I, and I know people people came back and they said, I can't believe that you're body shaming a felonious fugitive that was uh, fleecing the U.S. Navy for, you know, millions and millions of dollars. I am. I'm body shaming him. Uh, no, actually, that was not the name I gave him. That's the name of a uh, he's a Malaysian, um, he, a Malaysian uh, businessman who was bribing uh, Navy officials for many, many years to have ships make ports of call where his facilities were uh, in Asia. And he was overbilling the government by phenomenal amounts. And eventually the whole thing was uncovered, but he escaped custody in San Diego uh, a little over about a year and a half ago. A bit of an embarrassment for the uh, famous NCIS. Uh, They had him under house arrest. He literally just cut off his ankle bracelet, got an Uber, went down the border and fled. Um, and, um, uh, so, but he's back now and, uh, and some will point out jurisdictionally, the U S marshals have him now, not NCIS. <laughs> That's been brought up many times. So, uh, um, you know, anyway, I just, as a retired Marine, I just kind of find that interesting. All right. That, uh, uh, so, so much for the TV show fame. Um, anyway. That's that's kind of around the world. Anything specific you want to talk about? There's certainly enough other conflicts that we could talk all that. We could talk about Taiwan, South South China Sea, but um, but I think you have another guest you have to get to at some yeah, point. We do. I would like you just to give us the latest from your perspective on um, Hamas or not. I'm sorry, uh, uh, Ukraine and Russia. What, what's what's new there? Well, Ukraine and Russia, uh, what's, what's really, well, uh, I, the big news there is, of course, Congress did not get 
did not pass the uh, funding uh, to uh, the the sixty one billion dollars for Ukraine, and then the EU was blocked from giving fifty billion euros, which is a little bit more than fifty billion dollars uh, for Ukraine uh, by uh, Hungary's Orban, President Orban, uh, over there. However, with that said, the EU has said, "Look, we have another way. We're going to get that fifty billion euros to them. Probably happen in January, and they're going to work around the Orban veto." And interestingly, the Senate is kind of taking lead here. They look. The issue was, and we don't have time to talk about this, but the issue was really asylum in the border, and this just mass influx of illegal aliens coming across the border and trying to force the uh, Biden administration to really do something about it. Biden administration didn't want to. Uh, now they're being forced to. And, um, I mean, I, I kind of went out of a limb. I said, look, I, I said, at some point they have to come up with a, in order to get this passed, they're going to have to come up with a compromise. They're working on that compromise. Maybe early January when they're back in session, they'll get this through Congress. And uh, But the, the other news is that, uh, uh, F-16s apparently are inbound to Ukraine. Not exactly sure when they're hit, but but the Netherlands yesterday turned around and said 18 F-16s going in. And this is the thing we've seen is, I don't want to know if it's a game changer. It, it is a big shift on the battlefield. This will give uh, air superiority aircraft to Ukraine, something they've been sorely lacking, something they've been desperately needing. And that influx of F-16s will go in there that will really shift the battlefield. That will keep a lot of you, uh, Russian aircraft uh, away from the battlefield. And if you saw, if you've seen what Ukraine's done with uh, on this Black Sea with no navy, wait till you see what they can do in the air when they have F-16s that can take out anything that the uh, Russians put out. I think that will be a big shift, and hopefully, we'll see some more forward momentum uh, on the Ukrainian side. All right. Are are is Ukraine winning? You know, right now, uh, you know, it depends on how you look at it. it, it really, the war, the, the lines aren't moving a lot. Ukraine's making steady progress in certain areas. But if, but it's become an attritional war. Uh, and in terms of attrition, the Russian losses are phenomenal. Just, uh, you know, they're, they're up to almost, they're, they're getting close to 350,000. Uh, they're going to get there soon enough. Uh, killed on the battlefield. They have been taking losses of over a thousand people a day. Uh, scores of tanks, artillery. Um, they've been losing aircraft. They lost some fighter bombers uh, yesterday in a very, very well coordinated uh, anti air attack by the Ukrainians. So, in terms of attrition warfare, yeah, but there's a lot of Russians. You know, Russia's a lot bigger than Ukraine. Although Ukraine uh, is definitely holding their own. And, uh, and, you know, a lot of this is really, it's, uh, you know, at the end of the war, uh, it may be more important about the perception of, uh, of Russians of the war uh, at the end of the day. And when do they get tired of taking such horrendous losses? So it, it's really tough to say who's winning and losing. But if it's attrition numbers, the Ukrainians are definitely uh, uh, inflicting more, uh, more, more pain on Russia uh, than they are than they are taking in that regard, at least right now. All right, which leads to just one last question. Then uh, I'll uh, I'll let you go. Is do you think long term Ukraine can win? I, I think they can. 
uh, with sustained support uh, from uh, the from the U.S. and uh, and other nations, but particularly NATO and the United Nations. I mean, the uh, European Union. Um, I think that they can prevail, and there's a lot of things on the battlefield which indicate that they've they've got some real footholds in some key areas, and the Russians are just wearing down. You know, the question has always been, when do these units? And we've seen it. Units have been collapsing on the battlefield. Um, one of the things going crazy on the battlefield right now is is a is a uh, it's this uh, uh, monkey, not monkey pox, but some sort of monkey. Um, monkey tick or something. Uh, it's just getting everybody sick in the trenches. Uh, they're having units that are literally virtually combat deadline because of uh, <clears throat> because so many people are sick. It reminds me, <clears throat> in many ways, of World War One in terms of the uh, the impact this is having on them. The question has always been, how long can Russia keep these troops on the front lines? Because they don't rotate them; they just keep them on the front lines, and you can't do that indefinitely. Even with the somewhat stoic, uh, famous Russian ability to to basically uh, suffer, if you want to use that term, um, at some point they hit too much. And the question is, will there be a 1917? Will there be a point where the Russian army, where they turn on their officers or their officers turn and and they start marching back? We don't know. But if we can sustain Ukraine long enough. Uh, the Russians have a huge sustainment problem, and uh, and that's the hope. And uh, and the, by the way, the Ukrainians are going to mobilize or activate or or recruit another five hundred thousand troops. I think if they can get those into the fight by summer, uh, that will seriously shift things on the ground. Right. I think it's kind of a, amazing to imagine the fact that with the evolution of technology since. World War One that we are now talking about an end of this conflict, reminiscent of the end of World War One. Oh, Rich, absolutely. You know, and, and, and it's interesting. In some ways, you look at it and go, "This is modern warfare." Drone warfare uh, is huge. Of course, one of the things that goes back to World War One is landmines, and it goes back to World War Two. The Russians have have so peppered that Sorovkin line uh, with landmines. It is stunning. Uh, I was. I, I think everybody was was caught off guard when they started the big spring offensive or summer offensive that they couldn't move, and basically they got out in these open fields that the Russians had just littered with landmines at a, at a, at a depth and a density simply unfor, unseen in warfare ever before, way beyond any Russian doctrine in terms of laying landmines, and and that was their whole intent was our lines aren't that strong. But we're going to basically hold them up in the landmines and then just bring a lot of indirect fire on them, which is exactly what they did. And uh, but what it did is it, it slowed everything to a crawl. And here we are going into winter. So um, right. but that was but that's reminiscent of World War One as well. Yep, absolutely. Hal, I think uh, or Colonel, I should say, appreciate you coming on this morning, spending some time with us and wish you a Merry Christmas. And I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again uh, here again soon in the new year. Well, Rich, thanks for having me on. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Take care, Colonel. Hoorah. 
All right. Uh, th- thanks to uh, Colonel Kempfer for uh, spending some time with us this morning. We have two guests in the studio this morning, and uh, we've got a great conversation ahead. First with us is Dana Almond. She is the Cabinet Executive Officer and Executive Deputy Director of the Arizona Department of Veterans Services. She's also a retired uh, Army Lieutenant Colonel. We've got a lot of uh, Lieutenant Colonels in our midst this morning. And uh, also in the studio is uh, Bill Schaffler, an Army veteran and the uh, Department of Arizona Commander of the VFW, the Veterans of Foreign Wars. So good morning to both of you. Good morning. We've got uh, got a a lot to talk about this morning. Uh, We are going to talk about uh, kind of a a serious topic and a tough topic, although I think the information is great, and that is veteran suicide. So uh, before we move on to that, uh, Colonel Allman or Dana, how about telling us a little bit about yourself? So, yes, I've got more than 23 uh, years of active duty Army service. I'm a 1994 West Point graduate, um, and I see myself as a lifer. Um, And I just want to tell everybody um, how honored that I am that I'm in uh, Governor Hobbs' administration in her cabinet. And having this opportunity... Uh, to lead this state agency is definitely a dream come true for me. Great. Glad glad to have you. Glad to have uh, someone with your experience doing that job. We'll talk a little bit about uh, Arizona Department of Veterans Services here in a minute. And also, uh, we have our Arizona Department Com- or Department of Arizona Commander is the proper way to state it, right, of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, the VFW. Bill Schaffler, tell us a little bit about yourself, Bill. Uh, my story's uh, quite a bit different from Dana's. Uh, four years in the Army, I'm Desert Shield, Desert Storm veteran. Uh, I actually grew up, uh, one of my neighborhoods that I grew up in Tucson was right around the corner here, over by the park. Uh, uh, I actually remember delivering parts through here with my parents. We had a parts store for a while. So it's kind of weird sitting uh, in this uh, area of town, which I considered home for so long. Uh, and uh, uh, Dana is, uh, you know, like uh, she's a West Point graduate. I'm basically a Tucson street kid. Uh, 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 I have no higher education than high school. So uh, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there's a lot of education on the Tucson streets, too. Uh, right? I, I'm not, sure. not, not the type you want to brag about, but yes. <laughs> All right, so so again, we have two very qualified guests here to discuss some of these issues. I first want to uh, ask uh, Dana, tell us a little bit about the Arizona Department of Veterans Services and what they provide to the veterans here in, in Arizona. Right on, Rich. So uh, we're a state agency that serves and provides advocacy to military service members, veterans, and their families. Um, we provide direct services to the veteran community through veteran benefits counseling, Arizona Veterans Memorial Cemeteries, Arizona State Veteran Homes, and other statewide programs designed to aid veterans. All right. Very good. So a lot of responsibility, a lot of things that you do, a lot of services that you provide to the veterans in Arizona, both either those that are in need or or, uh, just are veterans that are looking for services that they're entitled to. Right on, and maybe um, our audience doesn't know, but there are 600,000 veterans, military members, and their families in this state of awesome responsibility and an awesome, exceptional, phenomenal uh, agency team. Okay. How is, how is your office distributed around the state? Do you have regional offices where veterans can go, or is it centrally located in Phoenix? So the brick-and-mortar things that you can see. So we have uh, four state homes. 
um, skilled nursing homes. One's in Yuma. We had a great grand opening uh, earlier this year. Um, we have one next to the Tucson VA Hospital. We have one next to the Phoenix VA Hospital. And the last one that we're working on getting open is the one in Flagstaff. Also, we have three veteran memorial cemeteries. One is in Sierra Vista. One is in Marana. I actually am a Marana resident. And there's one in Camp Navajo uh, near Flagstaff. So those are like the big things that you can physically see. Um, things you can't see. We have veterans benefits counselors. We're authorized about a 60 of those. And we are mainly remote. We do have what we call itinerant sites. So a veteran wants to file their uh, veteran disability claim. They can do it remotely. And what we found is we were able to provide those services even on a greater scale um, when we went uh, totally remote. But we also have the option, if a veteran wants to come in person to, to work on those claims, they, we have itinerant sites, and you can, and it's by region is where our, how we're organized for those uh, VBCs. Now, I'm sure the answer to this question could take the rest of the time, but h- how do you work with the, depart- the, the VA and the Veterans Administration, and how do you, uh, how does the, what's the relationship between DVS and the VA? So we, first of all, we have an outstanding um, relationship with with the Veterans Administration, specifically the three uh, VA hospitals in the state, one in Prescott, uh, Phoenix, and Tucson. And so we definitely um, value uh, the services that they give and their federal services. And I know we get confused uh, with the VA, and so we're at the state. But what's critical is that my folks know of how important the, the teams that they belong to in the agency, they're the face of. They know that they are the face of the governor uh, of, of the state. And then they are also the, the face of the VA because most of us do not know uh, the difference. And why should they have to worry about that? Correct. That, that, that's a great way to look at it. I think uh, it, does, it doesn't matter to the veteran that's needing their services where, where, where it comes from, right? Right on. Um, so... Bill, tell us a little bit about the Veterans of Foreign Wars and and what services they provide, what activities they engage in, uh, both here locally and statewide. Uh, Okay, so uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars, uh, we we trace our roots back to 1899. Uh, The original uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars formed from the Spanish-American War Veterans Association and uh, veterans from World War I. Uh, They were part of the Bonus Army that was fired on by federal troops uh, on the streets of Washington, D.C., uh, we have 66 posts in the state uh, that broke down, break down into 10 different districts throughout the state. Uh, we have three state service officers. Every post has, has a post service officer. We have three state service officers that are uh, accredited. Uh, they do a lot of good work for the veterans in our area. And uh, our, our main function is, uh, one, helping those veterans find uh, uh, the, the, the goods and services that they are entitled to. And uh, the the main power of the VFW is uh, their voice with Congress. We're one of the only organizations that's allowed to talk to Congress more than five minutes at a time. And uh, uh, it's pretty awesome to see, uh, you know, a combat veteran uh, giving the what for to a congressman or senator. Uh, I kind of refer to it as putting a boot in their fourth point of contact uh, and getting things done. That's that's our main job. I would ask you to further define 
the fourth point of contact. That would be I, the butt talks. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I, I was going to say this is a family show, but uh, that's but I understood exactly what you were saying. And I, I guess, given the political thing, just the political climate these days, talking more than five minutes to a member of Congress could even be hazardous to your health potentially. Uh, I, I guess you could look at it that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, now I got it. Before we go to break, I want to ask you one question that we chatted before the show, and I said I got to ask this because, and it's probably the question you get all the time that you like the least. But what is the difference between the VFW and the American Legion? Because I think most of our listeners so, uh, know both the American Legion. Uh, the, the eligible. I'm a member. I'm a member of the American Legion. So the eligibility in the American Legion is based on a, a veteran's service during time of war, not necessarily in a theater of conflict. Uh, uh, they are our brothers and sisters completely. Uh, we work hand in hand often with the with the American Legion. Uh, but uh, the VFW is uh, one of the only organizations that can say all of our members have uh, served. Uh, a time period in a theater of combat. Now, uh, not necessarily uh, b- bullets and uh, machine guns flying all the time. Uh, it takes truck drivers and uh, uh, cooks also. Uh, for every person uh, that, that's downrange uh, doing that work that uh, that the movies uh, glamorize, uh, there, there's quite a few people behind them making sure they have their bullets, their beans, and, uh, and, and frankly, their uniforms. Huh? So it's all of us. It's a team effort. How many members are there in Arizona of the VFW? Uh, we are uh, approximately 22,000 members uh, uh, in Arizona. Okay, great. With 600,000 veterans in Arizona, 22,000 were members of the VFW. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll take our break here at the bottom of the hour, and uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Thank you. Law Matters and Pima Federal Credit Union are hosting a free educational event on the topics of Internet scams and how AI can impact your future. Join us at 10 a.m. on Saturday, January 6th at Pima Federal, located at 6850 North Oracle Road in Tucson. For more information and to sign up, visit lawmatters1030.org. Law Matters is asking you to tune in every Saturday morning at 8 to hear from law enforcement and professionals in the industry. This coming year, Law Matters will be hosting educational events on topics that should concern everyone, like slavery, sexual predators, gun violence, and illegal drugs. And if you're buying illegal drugs, you are the problem. Because without buyers, there would be no sellers. Stay tuned to Law Matters for more event details as they develop. 911, what are you reporting? Um, I'd like to report a break-in into my car. I came out this morning and my laptop bag is gone and some of my books are gone. Are any of the windows broken or anything like that? Nothing's broken. Did you leave your vehicle unlocked or did you lock it before you went inside? I thought I locked it, but I, I don't think I did. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and uh, get an officer out to you as soon as I can. This doesn't have to be you. Remember to lock it or lose it. This has been a message from the Marana Police Department. Law Matters and Pima Federal Credit Union are hosting a free educational event on the topics of Internet scams and how AI can impact your future. Join us at 10 a.m. on Saturday, January 6th at Pima Federal, located at 6850 North Oracle Road in Tucson. For more information and to sign up, visit lawmatters1030.org. 
We're back with our guest, uh, Dana Allman, the uh, CEO of Arizona Department of Veterans Affairs and our Veterans Services, sorry, and our uh, Department of Arizona Commander of the VFW, Bill Schaffler. So uh, we're about to transition into this conversation that I'd like to have because I think it's important, and that is about uh, veteran suicide and um, what resources are available and and how we can see and prevent potentially uh, suicide. I saw a statistic that by every 21 seconds, somewhere in the country, a veteran is committing suicide or someone is committing suicide, and veterans are a large number of those, whatever the exact statistic is. So, um, Bill, why don't we start with you and kind of give us maybe some warning signs and things that, that you're that you want us to know okay so uh, uh mental health awareness uh they tell us that uh uh we're supposed to be paying attention to each other and and, and monitoring these five uh signs of emotional suffering so you have a uh, personality change uh, uh your friend maybe starts acting a little differently uh we have uh, agitation they're uh, always excitable always on edge uh ready for a fight at any time uh, you have withdrawal, where they uh, basically just kind of shut down and don't want to do anything with anybody. You have poor self-care. Uh, they're not shaving. They're not, uh, you know, taking a shower, showing up stinky. Uh, and and then uh, the, the, the biggest sign is hopelessness. And uh, uh, it's a really hard one to watch out for because obviously we all hide it. Uh, the problem with watching out for these five signs is if you walk into any American Legion, any veterans of foreign wars, uh, anywhere that you have a, a group of more than two veterans together, uh, you will basically see all five of these signs. So it's kind of hard to monitor uh, uh, for these five signs when you're literally seeing them in all of your friends all day long. Well, I think that leads itself to the premise that sometimes the opposite is true. Uh, all of these things, if someone presents that way like, like someone that is sloppy and all of a sudden they become like they've always been sloppy and mm-hmm. that's their baseline and they become all of a sudden they're dressed to the nines and perfectly pressed and all those things that that could also be that could also sign, be a right? sign it would be very hard to uh, uh figure it out but yeah it, it could obviously right. be a sign yep right people that are overly social all of a sudden become asocial asocial people become overly social you know, the, the, the opposite can be true if you know someone's baseline very well. Mm-hmm. True? That's true. Dana, what do you, what do you have to uh, add to that? Well, you know, we're, we're talking about the signs, and it's hard. I mean, I've heard things over the years where they're going to give away their, their cherished belongings. I mean, all these things are not, there's not just one overarching these things, and then we jump into action. It's, um, it's, I think it's more of kind of having an, uh, maybe it'll be connecting with each other because you could go down the checklist and go, well, I'm good. I didn't see any things today. But if you're not actually communicating with each other, um, I think you can, you, you can miss things, but it's not like you're intentionally trying to miss anything i think we're not connected with each other as well as we can and i'll i'll just tell you an example so i'll be in a situation where well they're like well you you know you went into combat you did more than 23 years of active duty army service well you're better than me i'm just a civilian and i'm like well you are a public servant we all are 
you your life is important and i don't you ever want you to talk down about yourself so if you, that right off the bat if you don't even see that you're valued um it's hard to to connect and i think that we all should um lift each other up daily because to track this to figure this out whether somebody is in crisis it's the way you speak with each other every day and communicate every day i think that is very valuable to figure out i think i might need to get you to someone now or they you built this relationship they're like i'm i'm not doing well today and they will speak up because i know for myself i don't want to admit that i'm not you know not having a bad day especially since retired army lieutenant colonel literally from when i graduated from west point i knew that it was my responsibility to protect your life limb health and welfare and that is a big big responsibility to do that for decades um and so i want to make sure i'm vigilant but i want to make sure that all of us are connected so that we all can and uh, take care of each other right and i know we're on the radio but i'm kind of waving my cell phone and that the the use of cell phones and people are it makes people more internal instead of external and it's hard to make those connections because everybody is tied to their phones so someone with a cell phone it makes them the center of the universe right and and human connection i think is something that's that's drifting away and i think that it, would you agree that's a uh in large part a, a the first ability to predict these things is to have that, as you said, that human connection. With right. I, so what I tell people is to turn your TV off and get out here in the world and speak with your neighbors. Um, if you get inundated with all, all of this, um, you watch any cable news channel. If you get sucked into that 24-7, you could have a really bad concept of the world that everything's going downhill and there's no hope. And I'll tell you, there is hope, but hope is not a strategy. We have to get out here and, and, and talk with each other face-to-face because um, we're public servants and we take care of each other. Right, exactly. Um, so, Bill, tell us a little bit about, uh, there's always been, and I've seen it during my law enforcement career, that there's a stigma associated with asking for help. Right. Uh, that is one of the main culprits. And uh, I, I, it, you know, I, we got to make something real clear here. Uh, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't expect uh, the colonel uh, to claim to be a, an expert on suicide. I know I'm not an expert on suicide. Uh, we both have had our issues with this very subject, our own personal issues with this subject. Uh, uh, so, so let's let's kind of make sure that everyone understands we're not experts. Uh, 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 but we feel, both of us feel very strongly about this subject. We spoke on this subject a, a, a couple of times together, uh, and uh, it's important. It's very important that we, that, we, that we do breach the subject and talk about it and uh, let people know that you're not alone. You're not all by yourself out there. Uh, there are other people suffering, uh, and you might be amazed... Uh, at who who those people are uh you yourself uh referred to uh, a a former classmate uh uh doing this and uh i'm sure it was a, it was a, a very vicious surprise yeah absolutely um 
And, and what I, I guess, and I appreciate you saying that we're not, none of us are mental health experts, and, and we're going to talk about that as getting people to that aspect of it. But peer support and having your your average person or your average veteran that's not an expert knowing these things with that human connection can oftentimes intervene and get the person to you know the veteran to that help that they actually need which is why you don't need to you don't necessarily need to be an expert you just need to care and know the signs and know what to do when the situation arises is that fair yes okay so and and you served in Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I started doing peer support work in 1995. So what what I've seen over the course of my law enforcement career is because peer support and critical incident stress debriefings, things along those lines, have become so prevalent that there's people coming on the job today as opposed to people that came on or were in the military in the early 1990s. They have a totally different view of resiliency and getting help and there's all these things that have evolved so i want i just want to ask how that works in you know in the department of veteran services and in the vfw so either one of you okay so uh sorry we're we're we're, we're bouncing back and forth uh so uh uh the stigma associated with asking for help uh, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up in in uh, you know late seventies, early eighties, and uh, tough guys didn't ask for help. Uh, uh, they they could be doing the, the most ignorant thing uh, on the planet. They're trying to pick up a car all by themselves, right? And their neighbor's right there with the jack, and uh, they're not going to ask to use that jack because they're a man. Uh, they're a tough guy. Uh, you know, they're 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 above average, and they're not willing to ask for help. And that has uh, obviously changed quite a bit through the last few decades. Uh, and uh, the stigma associated with asking for help, the fact that you might be a little, uh, I don't want to say weak, but you need help. Uh, and there was a time period where people just refused to ask for help because they were uh, you know, full of themselves, frankly. Right. Anything to add to that, especially as a, as as a, you know, with female veterans. Mm-hmm. Right. So what I've, what I'm specifically looking at with stigma. So I remember you know, I've been in, I enlisted in the Army Reserve in 1989. And for much, much of my career, it's called touchy feely. If someone says that they're having a problem, they're not feeling good today, emotionally, well, you just need to suck it up and, you know, keep moving on is the way we are uh, trained and beaten to our heads and we just are automatic pilot to not say anything. But I want people to know they're strong to say something. But, you know, you have to figure out, I've, I've watched where we have the senior leaders of the military trying to figure out how are we going to reduce suicide. And one of my positions, I, I came out of my combat deployment with the Joint Special Operations Task Force Philippines, OEF Philippines. I was there 2009 to, to 2010. And when I came back from that deployment, it, I was definitely a changed person. Um, we lost two Special Forces NCOs. They were blown up. And um, I had never at that point um, had to get a document from a doctor that says someone has now died in, in a combat zone. And 
I also, it was the first time I had seen where, you know, but I'm an HR officer. So what's instilled in, to us who are not combat arms, um, that we're not good enough, that we didn't, anybody can do our job, and that the infantry and special forces, special operators are better than us. And what I saw during that deployment is, it was kind of shocking to me. So there was a senior member of the task force who would tell a story about, basically, if we thought you were weak, then the gist of the story is we're going to do whatever it takes. It sounded like to me that we're going to either harass you into falling in the line or you were just going to quit. And this particular person would say it so many times, I thought that they, they really would get this expression on their face of they liked telling this story. And I'm thinking through, okay, I came in the military to be an HR officer and protect the lives, limb, health, and welfare of, of others. If you do not respect my service of what I sign on the dotted line to do, I'm not going to come to you. I'm not going to trust you to even tell you that I'm having a problem because you think anybody can do my job. I don't contribute. Um, so that can be a problem. If you see it as touchy feely to even say anything and then you don't even respect my, my way of serving. So if I was national guard reserve, you know, the, the thought out here is I've heard, well, active duty is better than national guard reserve. Everybody serves. Like I said before, everybody's a public servant and they've served. So that is a major thing that we need to be aware of. We need to value each other's service every day of the week. Absolutely. Um, Bill, anything to add to that? Uh, not not at this point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so um, I want to, I know each of you have some personal experience with veteran suicide. So I want to take a little bit of time to let you reflect on that story as uh as you see fit and because i think our audience will benefit from knowing a story and seeing what happened and 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 those kind of things so I'll, uh, again i i probably should pick one of you to go first because of what happened the last question but so uh dana why don't you go first can you repeat sure i i, I both of you have some experience with veteran suicide so I, i'd like for you to discuss your personal story or your experience with this and to, to help our listeners understand and, and better understand what they need to do. Unfortunately, I've had different experiences over the decades um, worrying about my personnel and are they homicidal, suicidal? Are they thriving professionally? Um, have I created an environment of trust that they will come to me, they will come to their chain of command. And I have had many moments where I've had to intervene because I could tell, I mean, I literally, my assignment um, in Korea, I was a post platoon leader, um, detachment XO, and one of my uh, soldiers was, took like most of the bottles, pills in a bottle. So that was early on in my career. Then I've had different moments where I'm a, you know, now I'm a lieutenant colonel and one of my folks is, is um, not doing very well and considering um, taking their own life. But the thing that really jumped out at me um, 
this year was in June. Um, I don't know if everybody knows Mark Short. He was the senior vice commander for the state VFW. And this was a personal loss for me. I have known many people, you know, heard about and, and those who have taken their lives. So backing up a moment. So when I came out of that deployment that I talked about, my responsibility was to be, the, I was the chief of uh, well-being programs for the entire U.S. Army Pacific. That's 150,000 personnel. And one of the uh, program areas, it's called uh, Health Promotion, Risk Reduction, Suicide Prevention. So during that time, unfortunately, I would get emails telling me that we had just lost another soldier to suicide. And it was my responsibility to figure out how are we going to stop this from happening. We don't want to lose another battle buddy. And at that point, and it's probably still the case, the first general officer in that soldier's chain of command had to explain to the vice, to the chief of staff of the army, why this happened. Let's look through all the data. And what we found was there were a good soldier. They were having professional and personal struggles. They had access to a weapon. Because that's the number one method is a weapon. It's a firearm. And knowing back then what was the major issue. The chain of command back to this touchy-feely type of thing. All of those cases, they had all been inpatient mental health. They'd all been admitted inpatient. They were released. But because the chain of command, again, thinks it's a touchy-feely and, well, you look fine, you're out, they released you, so you must be okay. Um, not understanding. They actually need more counseling. They need more help. Um, so knowing those data points and fast-forwarding to this year in June and finding out that my friend, because I'd never had a friend do this, take their life And it, it really hit me hard because I'm 100% service-connected disabled. And for me, and probably many, it's hard to even say that because when they look at me, they're like, well, you're all put together. You must be fine. And like Bill was saying, you, you, people present in different manners. You don't even know what, what they're hanging on to. You have no, no idea. But I finally was able to be strong enough. I should not have to lose a friend to finally feel like I might be strong enough to reveal my own reason why the Army said you must leave the Army. Because I'm a lifer. I knew since I was 17 years old that I wanted to serve my country. And I wanted to be an officer and do it that way. But when your friend takes his own life, and I felt helpless, I felt guilty because I'm like, what could I have done? I'm always worried about that anyway. But what could I have done for my own friend? Oh, man, if I had just admitted that I suffer and I struggle with mental health every day, which led to um, my having to do a, a, a forced out with a medical retirement, maybe I could have helped him. Maybe I could have helped many more. And so I finally decided, basically... When I found on that Monday after it happened, 
that week was the DAV State Convention, and that convention, that was the first time I actually said it out loud of my own struggles. And I was grateful that I got a lot of positive response of, oh my gosh, I had no idea, and I, I actually, you, I know you relate to me. And then folks started revealing their struggles. So I'm going to jump in now. Yeah, uh, please. Me and Dana have now known each other for a little over six months. Uh, and most of that relationship started on June 2nd of this year. I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment. Uh, let's talk about my struggles real quick. So uh, uh, I, I, I get 80% from the VA for PTSD. Uh, I won't go into uh, all the, the reasons for that, but that, that's where I'm at is 80%. And uh, uh, two years ago, my son, my 30-year-old son, got, got, uh, he got in a wrestling match with a car on his motorcycle. He spent 30-plus days in a coma. We almost lost him. Uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what put me in this state of mind. Uh, my wife's had a lot of health issues. She's been a Mayo patient for the last nine years. Uh, and then, like I said, my son got hit, and a couple months later, I had a heart attack. So I went from being the uh, the, the guy that all my friends called to do anything that involved any sort of physicality. It could be painting your house. It could be pulling an engine from a car or a motorcycle or just anything anything you needed, a dumb brute to come by uh, that they called me. And uh, dang, if 24 hours after that heart attack, I had to call people and say, hey, uh, you know, can you come over and help my wife unload the groceries? I, I can't do that. Uh, so I had a lot of issues come the beginning of 2023. And I, I had to make the phone call. We're going to tell you about a phone number, 988-1. I had to use that phone number earlier this year. And uh, I didn't talk about it a lot with all my friends, but a couple of my friends knew it. And uh, we had some discussions, and Mark Short was one of those friends. So uh, this year uh, uh, we had our state convention uh, in Phoenix, 2023 state convention. And uh, during that convention on Wednesday, uh, a friend of ours had had, uh, he's got his own issues with suicide also. He had started making these suicide awareness beads. And I saw them on, on Facebook. I saw these beads and I, I says, hey, uh, we make a bunch of those sets. And I want to I want to give those out to my state officers uh, and, and let them know that, you know, I, I'm going to be a commander in another year from now at that point. And uh I will be talking about this a lot. I was kind of warning uh, the VFW leadership that I was going to be talking about veteran suicide a lot. And uh, two days later, uh, my friend, uh, the person who was right in front of me in the chairs, we've already said his name a few times, uh, he decided that our state convention was the place to uh, to take that final step, and and uh, and he used a gun, and and I found him. I, I I went in a room, uh, went up some stairs really loud, expecting my buddy to be drunk, passed out, uh, crying, something. I did not expect to walk into a room and uh, find my friend. I don't want to talk about that too much. It was pretty messy. Um, but so uh, uh, I found my friend, and 12 hours later, I was elected uh, commander of the state BFW, uh, and so a lot of thoughts were racing through my head uh, very quickly uh, over that that twelve hour window. I didn't sleep that night. I didn't sleep for a couple of nights, really. Um, he knew that help was right there. He knew that everyone in that room uh, w- would literally drop anything they were doing 
uh, to spend time with him, to talk with him, and to get him the help he needed. Uh, the help is there. Uh, there are multiple resources. We have Be Connected. We have 988-1. There's the uh, National uh, uh, Suicide uh, phone number. I don't want to get into too many phone numbers because I'd have to be playing with my computer too much for all that. Uh, but the fact is, is that he knew help was there, and he did. He chose. He chose not to ask for it. Uh, in the end, the only person that can really help you if you're having any of these feelings, uh, you have to use that hole under your nose and ask for help. Uh, you can't expect. Uh, you can't expect us to necessarily pick up on those those five signs I talked about. Uh, you can't expect us uh, necessarily uh, to be aware of problems other than our own. As as all of us go through life, we're all dealing with our own problems, and we might not necessarily know notice that person next to us having their own issues. So you are your own greatest advocate. Open your mouth, ask for help. Uh, you can ask a friend. That that's where it started for me talking with some friends. Uh, but in the end, you, you really need to seek professional counseling uh what helped for me the most was a group uh, i i i did a, a group thing with the va and to hear other veterans uh basically speaking my thoughts uh because of how they were going through their just their daily life you know driving a car and uh some of the stuff they said and i'm like oh god he's gonna say this he's gonna say that she's gonna say this she's gonna say that and right there um so, again, if you are having these issues, you need to be your own greatest advocate. You need to reach out. You need to ask for help. Dial 988-1. Uh, talk to a friend. They will get you to the place you need to be, to the help you need. Uh, but you have, to use, you have to use your words. And I want to point out, so one of the main programs uh, statewide, the Be Connected program, is a statewide effort to strengthen access to support and resources for the more than half a million service members, veterans, and their families who call Arizona home. The program focuses on connecting veterans to the services they need early enough to prevent them from feeling isolated and having suicidal ideations. Why? The risk of suicide is three times higher among Arizona veterans. The risk of suicide is four times higher among older Arizona veterans. Here are the top reasons people use Be Connected. Financial assistance, VA benefits, behavioral health, permanent housing, emergency shelter. So there are three parts to be connected. Call, match, learn. So call a veteran, family member, or someone in the community. Uh, they can to call and the support line for assistance connecting to resources. Then you've got match. Be connected. Employ statewide resource navigators that offer personalized help connecting to resources. There's also an online tool to match people with their resource they need and, and learn. Be Connected uh, provides in-person and online training so everyone can gain the knowledge and skills to help. So anyone can access Be Connected at beconnectedaz.org or by calling 1-866-4AZ-VETS. All right. Thank you very much. I, and I just want to touch on the fact that Dialing 988-1 will get you to veterans assistance. It's specific for veterans, but 988 is also a number. 988 is a national hotline. Anyone seeking help can get help there. Correct. And and, and they will 
put you in touch with the appropriate resources. Sure so that's a resource for anybody, whether they're a veteran or not. It, the Dash One is for veterans. Boy, that this time went by quicker than I could have imagined. So uh, thank you for joining us this morning. And I want to thank our guests again, uh, Dana and Bill. Merry Christmas, and uh, we'll see you again in the new year. Uh, Merry Christmas, and uh, to all veterans out there, thank you so much for your service. We love all of you. Right on. Hoo-ah!